I praise God for his sovereignty and the faithfulness of Dalton this morning for preaching and Dawson stepping up in the morning to serve. It's so clear and easy to see we are focused on the truths of scripture and sound doctrine and the way that they led this morning in light of changes that happened did not change that. It only illustrates this message even that more clearly and I pray that you will see this by the time we are done this evening. I have to admit, though, from this morning's message, I was hit with the news regarding Canada and and the prohibiting of the true words of Scripture being proclaimed and the jail sentences that would come. And yet I fully recognize this is not the first time. It's certainly just a perpetuation of Genesis 3. Turning away from the truths of God and pursuing the desires of the heart have always been the cause of our problems. It has happened for thousands of years and will continue unending until the Lord himself returns to set things straight with us. Empty, vain words will continue until he comes to set things right. The way that we want to do it is my way, without any consequences of what we do. We want no responsibility for our actions. So that just stung me today, this morning, as I was going through and continuing to prepare. In this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy to encourage him to handle the difficult circumstances going on within the church, with the onset of culture. But honestly, culture easily comes into the church because that's the nature of the church. We bring in the lost into the church as they are saved and redeemed by Christ, and there's a transforming work that goes on. So then it's the work of the church to do and to help those that are brought in. And without that faithfulness to that work, to the teaching of scripture, false doctrine, false teaching comes in and causes much disturbance, problems, divisions. Sin within the church continues, propagates, and even destroys churches. So the meaning, the whole meaning of this letter is the idea of building a faithful church. What's the criteria and how do you set it forth? Even chapter 3 was highlighting the criteria for faithful leaders to lead this church. Yet Timothy wasn't one of those exactly coming into that role. That was setting up elders, that was setting up deacons, and Timothy's being called to come in from the Apostle Paul as a servant of Paul And yet Paul calls him a good servant of Christ Jesus. So the role that he's filling is somewhat unique, but really transforms into how leading a church should be and leading a faithful church should be. In the context of the culture, wherever it was set, for all time. So tonight, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, We're going to see Paul instructing Timothy in three priorities that all good servants of Jesus Christ need to be able to build faithful churches. Paul's instructing Timothy in three priorities that all good servants of Jesus Christ will need to build faithful churches. So the first priority, good servants follow sound teaching. Good servants follow sound sound teaching. If we follow along in the text in verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, 
constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. This is a, is a transition from the text above. And in pointing out these things to the brethren, it's the obvious question, what things are we pointing out? The immediate context is verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, but, but really it's, it's the larger breadth of tying to the entire letter that's happened so far. Paul actually uses these things number of times in the letter to connect the letter together with, with what's going on to being a faithful church, to being a faithful leader and a faithful church member. He's doing this to Timothy, to the church there at Ephesus, and honestly to the church here at Summit Woods. We need to be constantly reminded of these things, ensuring faithfulness of a church to the truth of the gospel. So then coming back to the text real quick, if we're pointing out these things to the brethren, who are the brethren? Well, the brethren would be the entire congregation there that Timothy is going to in Ephesus. So he's pointing out these things. Pointing out, in Greek, carries the idea of emphasizing something to be made known. So it's not just pointing out that, yes, there's an error over here and, and that's what that is and I'm making it known to you, but it's actually also bringing in the idea of, of teaching or instructing something about it. So the, these errors, these things that have been going on, these false doctrines that were going on, I need to instruct you on them. I'm going to show you what they are and I'm going to teach you through them. Several of the verbs within this passage in Greek, point back and emphasize what the subject is doing. Not necessarily as much as the action, but, but point back to. So the idea here is that, Timothy, you will be pointing out these things to the brother. And I'm going to emphasize Timothy is doing this. Why? Because that's what Timothy's being set forth to do. And he has to be the one calling these out. He's going in to kind of help this church to straighten out what's going on. False teaching, bad, bad ideas, empty and vain words. And it's intended for Timothy, but we can see to the brethren also indicating that Timothy is really going to be using this exact content and bringing it to the entire church. And so therefore, it's just as fitting for Timothy, for the church then, as it is for the church now. And yet, this word carries a forcefulness to it that, that indicates that there will be a sense of intensity coming with this. The verb here is actually, when used without that idea of emphasizing the subject, is the idea of risking your neck to do this. I'm going to risk my neck to reach out to point this out to you in some way, to teach this. This is something that's going to cost me, and I have to do this for you. The idea here also is that this is what's going to help him be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You need to do this. The servant word is similar to the word for deacon, though it was used a little differently just in the passage before, so we know it's not the office of deacon that he's talking about. You're going to be a good servant. How? By leading the church in this way. You're not an apostle. You're not me. You're not Paul. That's what Paul is saying, but you are a good servant of Jesus Christ. You're going in to do this unique role, but you're really going in to establish leadership, and you're going to be modeling that leadership for the church. But how will he become a good servant? How will he be demonstrating this good servant? Paul's 
helpful in saying that you will be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Nasby in several translations uses the word nourish. And you get this idea that you are. You, we, we constantly say that, you know, I'm, I, I'm nourished on the word. I'm strengthened and encouraged. Like you would be if you were eating food. I'm strengthened and encouraged. But the idea here is, is actually directed to towards kind of like children, raising children. Paul uses a very similar word in Ephesians 6.4 when he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the word here conveys the intention again of, of training, instruction. I'm going to be doing something to nourish you, but what am I going to be doing? Not just giving you something. I'm going to be instructing you, training you, and trying to bring you up in it. But yet, the emphasis is back to Timothy. It's not the instruction necessarily that's always being emphasized here. So let me clarify this just a little bit more. We could say, Timothy, be nourished by the words of truth. And you're kind of left going, well, who's doing the nourishing? But Paul's not doing that. Paul's clarifying with the way he's using the verbs and saying, Timothy, you nourish yourself by the words of truth. Timothy must be the one nourishing himself because he's going into an area that needs strengthening. So the leaders in the church have to be able to nourish themselves. Just as the idea that there's a difference in going, the parents are going to be nourishing the children. They're the ones providing. But yet at some point, the children become the ones nourishing themselves and being able to provide then for someone else. So there's that idea of a shift in in, in what that nurture and growth is doing. What's he encouraging to be nourished on? Words of faith and words of sound doctrine. It says, on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, words is actually modified by of the faith and of the sound doctrine. So it's telling you what he's being nourished on is truly the words. And that should immediately connotate for us, Jesus Christ is the word. He is the truth and the life. So it's being nourished on scripture. It's being nourished on the words that he would have received from the gospels, from other instruction and training, but, but all words of scripture. Words of faith. Words that are faithful to that text and the understanding of what that Christian faith would be, but also sound doctrine. What's the difference? The words of faith are the clear words, but you also have to be able to teach them. And the teaching isn't the emphasis here, it's actually the content of the teaching. Again, it is the words, but it's how they're being taught. So it's, it's that teaching of the sound words and words that are faithful to what is actually being given to you. You have to nourish yourself on truth and truth alone. And it has to be taught well and it has to be taught right. And that's what you should be nourished on. This emphasis here on good teaching, good doctrine, sound doctrine, compares to the bad teaching that we find in verses 1 through 5. The same word for teaching and doctrines is there. It's the doctrines of demons. The, The teaching of demons was what was going on just a few verses before. And the deceitfulness, the hypocrisy of teaching, the forbidding of marriage and foods, these are bad things. 
both of which are good gifts, marriage and food, given from what James tells us, from the Father of lights, who gives good and perfect gifts from above, with no deceitfulness or shifting shadows or change. So there's a contrast going on here. This is the good teaching. That's bad teaching. Nourish yourself on this. This is in contrast to the also what's coming up, the unfaithful, these bad fables fit for old women. So we'll get to that in just a minute. So Paul encouraging Timothy in this is to be a good servant. And he's not saying you need to start doing this because you haven't done this. He's saying this is what you have started doing from long ago and what you need to continue doing to continue to strengthen yourself, but really to build a faithful church as well. You have to do this work in you to be able to do this work with others. Timothy has followed faithfully since before his conversion. He had a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother who did become saved and taught him in that, but he was being taught faithfully in that. And it says in 2 Timothy 3.14, continue in these things that you've learned and been convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them and what that from childhood you have known the sacred writings the Old Testament, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It couldn't be more clear what Paul is talking about here. Timothy, you've been faithful. Continue to be faithful in what you study and what you know and what you do. Don't let it slip. Because the church is at stake here. Paul's exhortation here is for Timothy to be strong in the midst of this bad teaching, the false doctrines that are going on. He must continue to do this. We must continue to do this. Whether it is the local church body in Ephesus or here, we must be constantly pouring over, building up ourselves, and then instructing others in these words of truth. This actually connects very well to Ephesians 4, the same church that Paul had already written to, verses 11 through 16, when he says, you've been given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints to grow in unity. And what the knowledge of the Son of God, the truth of doctrine, the knowledge of the Son of God. Why? So you are not led away by false doctrine. Instead, being built up in unity and growing the body of Christ a faithful church. So Paul's emphasis here has not changed. Our call has not changed. He's just encouraging Timothy. You're going in, you're going in alone, son. I'm not going to be there with you. Okay, but you're going to be able to be faithful because of what you've done, what you're focused on, and who is with you. It is Christ and his word that is sustaining you and strengthening you. But you must remain faithful in what you are doing as well. And our church leaders today have that one thing to do as well. The purpose of teaching is to strengthen the body and to encourage it to be faithful in what it's doing. But the leaders must be working to train themselves up. This does not mean you do not go out to receive training in some way or that you're not encouraged through others being able to pour into you. It does mean that every one of us has a responsibility to the diligence that we need to do to dig into the word, to study the word, and to be pouring over it in prayer. Strengthening our own hearts so that we can encourage and strengthen others as well in the time of need. Here, equipping class leaders, growth group leaders, Titus 2 leaders, Ironman leaders, children's ministry leaders, all have that burden and responsibility and all the church. So the first priority is that good servants follow this sound teaching. The second priority is 
Good servants reject false teaching. Good servants reject false teaching. You might go, well, that sounds like you're just trying to make this go even longer. But really, Paul points it out so intently in verse 7 that it really warrants pointing out that you can follow sound teaching and, and really ignore false teaching, and that's not what he's pointing out here. Verse 7a, the first part of 7, says, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. (laughs) That was fun. And Pastor Brett even alluded to it in last Sunday's sermon as he was talking about the context of disciplining ourselves for godliness. And the translations, if you look at them, they're all over the place. They're like, I don't want to touch this. I'm going to jump in and touch this. Old women, fables, whatever it is. So then naturally I got even more curious when I saw that and said, okay, what are we doing? So it's, it's pretty interesting. Both of the Greek words here do carry the idea of these elderly women being characterized by spreading of tales, false words, and even unsound doctrine. But, but why would Paul use these here when it's so clear in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul exhorts Timothy in how to handle others that older men... We're, we're to be treating older men as fathers, older women as mothers. Not sharply rebuking, but in all purity. So obviously Paul's not trying to condemn or make fun or, or criticize and be cruel. He's not making fun of some gender or age issue here. What is he pointing out? Well, the idea in these Greek words conveys you have emptiness in these words. You have bad teaching that are worth nothing these old fables and tales that you hear do nothing for you. They fill emptiness and they actually cause confusion, if nothing else, maybe division, sin. So why does he use those two words? The emphasis on the emptiness of what's being taught compared to what he's supposed to be feeding on and what helps build a faithful church. You cannot be spreading things that are not true in the church as taught from scripture or something good that a Christian must do if it does not come from the words of truth. He says have nothing to do with these. And again, that gives the idea that you can just kind of ignore them and set them on the side. But the emphasis in the word is reject these things. It's a command given to Timothy and it's pointing back to Timothy again. Timothy, you must yourself reject these things. These teachings, these words, it's the same word he uses just a little bit later in in chapter 5, verse 11, when he says, the widows that are coming that are not supposed to be put on the roll, you have to to turn them away. You have to reject them. You You can't just ignore them and not address what's going on here. You have to deal with it. You have to tell them, no, you're not fit. And then you have to encourage them to go do the right thing. And the women, the widows that would be there, the encouragement is if you can't be on the list to be taken care of by the church and you're not a widow... What is it? Well, go do godly things. Get married. Pour yourself into what the scriptures tell you to do. And that's the same idea here is you need to reject this teaching and you're going to bring in truth. So not only do we feed on these words of truth, we must actively say, no, that is not right. We do it in loving and caring ways. But we cannot allow empty words to propagate as teaching or allow confusion to go on in them 
and certainly not to drive it into false teaching or false teachers. We are very susceptible, just as they were. We would think maybe of these fables of old women or wives' tales as something that we wouldn't get caught up in. Maybe they're like fairy tales. Maybe it's something that's just absolutely ridiculous. Who knows? Santa Claus, right? Ridiculous. We wouldn't think of it. That's not the truth at all. But yet, we're constantly caught up in the shifting truths of today. From the media and social media to the internet experts that we turn to often. We'll fall into a trap very easily on one side or the other and then start to exalt those things as something that we must do. It was just, again, sovereign how clear this was this morning. Have we spent any time online recently searching for truth on COVID? Maybe politics, health, economics, foreign threats, domestic threats. I mean, it's the celebration of the attack on the Capitol. Didn't we all go see some some news that just came up? And we know that we can find the truth absolutely by going online or listening to the news and figuring out exactly what happened and trusting it. I would say, no, we can't. And we'll never know until we get to heaven. And we'll go, oh, eh, how about that? And that's about all it will be worth. Again, the message that we've heard in Hebrews as we were, as Brett was preaching through it is what are the voices, what are the voices that you are listening to? There should only be one. And it should be Christ, the Word, the founder and perfecter of your faith. If you want to be faithful, listen to the one who is faithful, who never changes. So when anyone brings up anything contradictory to scripture or just not clear, just stop them and, and help them see what's going on. Even if you don't want a confrontation, even if leaders don't want to deal with a confrontation. Because maybe that idea won't permeate throughout the entire church. Oh, there was just a few comments over there. Oh, it, was just a, it was just a simple comment in class, an equipping class that came up. Or maybe in a growth group. Ah, I'm, not, I'm just going to ignore it. Because really it wasn't that harmful. But as I've heard from Dalton, and I believe it, I, I'm not going to quote, but I think it, it comes from some. We heard in discipleship counseling, I think it roots itself in Owen, but who knows, it could be Dalton. The idea of pulling out a single sin in a garden is fictitious. You can't pull out a single weed in the garden and think that you're all done weeding your garden. And the worse that you let them go and grow, the more entanglement happens. Unbeknownst to us what's going on under the earth. So it must be constantly worked on and in different ways, and looking for everything that needs to go on. Sin is connected. So are these words that are empty, that are going on. They're connected, unseen by us, unbeknownst to us, what's actually going on. It's the very same idea. We had a great example this summer that I have to point out. We had a garden that we finally started here at our home, and we did boxes, and we could easily pull the weeds out when we got going because the soil was so so healthy that we decided to get, and, and, and it was... we put a couple of boxes in some really bad spots and there was a lot of weeds that came up but we would go out there we were faithful you could get them out some of them were strong and we got COVID we were down for like four or five weeks and then we didn't attend to it for a couple more weeks I went out to that box and tried to clean out the weeds I couldn't and then I decided to get a pitchfork and I'm like I'm just gonna I'm gonna burrow these things out and just I'm gonna clean this out we'll dig it up and we'll just make it fresh again 
Well, I nearly destroyed the box that was on top of it, and I certainly destroyed a pitchfork that the tongs went completely on. I was amazed at the power of the weeds that were in the earth. I was pulling them out by hand just a couple of short months earlier as I was staying on top of them. And the same idea is here. Any false words or sin that we let propagate unbeknownst, and we just turn it aside and say, yeah, it's not that important, grows. It constantly grows. So I'm very thankful for men in the church, women in the church that are able to quickly say, hey, you know what? Let's talk about that. What you just brought up in class, eh, let's, let's discuss. That's not necessarily truth. It's not something we're going to stand on and hold to. Let's, let's figure out what that means. And it's just a quick clarification and you've easily dealt with it. And if not, it will certainly propagate into something that can be addressed then. But if you choose to ignore it, you don't know what others it just infiltrated and other ways that it will continue to spread. And that's the way that empty words and this vain gossip goes. And that's why it's these wives' tales that go on. So good servants must not only follow sound teaching, they must reject. They must actively reject false teaching, empty words. So there are the three priorities that all good servants of Jesus Christ need to build faithful churches. The first is to follow sound teaching. The second, reject the false. Follow sound teaching, reject false teaching. And the third is good servants strive for godliness. This is verse 7 through 10. So I'm going to give you just up front a couple of subpoints, and we'll see if we follow along for them. The first would be godliness actually prioritizes godliness prioritizes eternal over temporal, and the second one will be godliness demands temporal sacrifice for eternal benefit. Uh, we'll get those again later. So godliness prioritizes eternal over temporal. Seven. The second half is seven through eight. It starts, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. On the other hand, points to a contrast. We had an earlier contrast that compared the content of the teaching, the good versus the empty. The good, what he's supposed to nourish himself on, versus the empty, these, these tales of these old women. The second contrast compares the actions of what to spend your time doing. This is a comparison now of you've rejected the worthless, what are we going to do? We need to pursue the eternal. And Paul does what Paul does. He changes the verbs up just a little bit more to convey even more specifically to Timothy here. It's no longer the verb showing that Timothy needs to be the one doing. He's just completely explicit and says, Timothy, you yourself here need to discipline yourself. He's the one doing the work. He must be the one training himself. You must discipline yourself. If I wasn't clear before, Timothy, I am clear now. This is your job, your work. I am not there with you. What is he disciplining himself for? For the purpose of godliness. Godliness we often think of in just general terms. Being like Christ, maybe holiness. The Greek word here, points to an awesome or uncommon devotedness or reverence to someone or something. Kind of get that idea of piety, piety, however it's said. I really have no idea. But we translate it today as godliness. And we just tend to think of the, role, the, the result of that. Well, we're just being godly. This is a result. 
But actually, it's the work that goes into the godliness that also demonstrates the godliness. How is that reverence? What does it look like? Is it awesome and uncommon? What would it look like to have an unusual dedication or devotedness to something? First of all, if it's uncommon, I guarantee you somebody's going to look at you and go, hmm. But things that I think are uncommon, but are really common, football shrines to the chiefs. You paint your vehicles, you do them up, you take them out, you've got them completely ready for going out to the game, you've painted your face, you make treats in the shape of Patrick Mahomes and Arrowhead Stadium. Your clothing clearly identifies who you are standing for, not just your team, but maybe even the individual on the team. Every YouTube channel you're on, Facebook post, Instagram has something to do with what you love. If it's not and it's something about it, you've probably got a Chiefs logo just embrazened on the bottom of every picture that you post. Or maybe it's your work. Absolutely dedicated. I know my work wants me to wear the gear all the time, talk about it, sell it, do it, use it, live it, breathe it, dye it. And if you're not, well, there's a problem. But guess what? All of that takes energy, time, money, resources from you to be able to do these things. That's devotion uncommon devotion, when you set something apart so highly that you're able wanting to put that much effort into it. Timothy, you're to be training yourself for the purpose of an awesome and uncommon devotion and reverence to the Lord. It will be absolutely clear he's devoted to Christ. The gospel, the teaching of scripture as a whole, following God's clear commands to love the Lord above everything else, to love others, hmm? And to be holy, for he is holy. That will be clear. Can we say that of ourselves today, right now? That it is absolutely clear that we are living that way. If it's not clear what Paul means, he says in verse 8, For bodily discipline is only of little profit. This training that you're going to be doing, this this is bodily training. This This is a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. This godliness training you're going to do, it benefits well beyond anything else you're going to do. Why? Because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul's explaining what he means. This training is the same Greek words that are being used for training. The the, the effective training Ephesus was known for its legendary games. The youth would be enrolled in training programs so that they would grow in strength and vigor and they would go compete. This same training Paul's applying now to the spiritual realm. It's not uncommon for Paul. This training and intensity that's going on Paul's shifting it from the body to the spiritual for a reason. And he's also saying that body, it's not worthless. It's of little worth. And that little worth is not because we can easily say, eh, it doesn't matter. God says it's of little worth. No, God's saying it's of little worth compared to God. All eternity. When you live for a maximum of 120 years in light of all eternity, God can say, little And it seems really big to us. 120 years, dear Lord, I don't know if I want to live that long. It might hurt a lot. But God says it's forever. This is the comparison, little to forever. So little benefit, you will gain benefit from being physically trained. But there's much more spiritual benefit coming out of this if you will focus on godliness and put the efforts that you put here into my work and my kingdom, which will stand and last forever. The body, the emphasis here on the word, the body, it is temporal. 
it won't last. But yet, we need that body to last for the time we're here. We need it to do the work. The work to earn money, to care for one another, to actually bring the gospel to the rest of the world. We need mental facilities to be able to do this as well. We have to care for the physical and the mental, all connected. Spiritual's in there as well. It helps us to grow in godliness when we're studying and knowing the truth. And yet, we often pour much more into the temporal than we will ever invest in anything godly. And he holds that there's a promise, though. A promise for benefit now and for the life to come. Verse 9 says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. It almost looks like it's been thrown in the middle there. And the commentators somewhat agree. They have a distracted time deciding which, which way does this point to. What's the trustworthy statement? I think if you look carefully at the, the sentence structure, the context surrounding it, but yet the overarching letter itself, and the translation is a little bit more literal. It says, faithful is the statement. Again, faithful is a helpful word. Trustworthy is a good. Faithful is the word that's there. Faithful is a statement deserving full acceptance. Faithful is often used throughout this entire book. That's how we get the theme of the letter, to build a faithful church. It's used close to a dozen times in this letter alone. So to point to this statement as faithful and identifies its importance. So what is he calling important? That we would grow in godliness and see that the benefits of it are well beyond our temporal existence. And there is a promise that goes with it that we have been redeemed. This redemption impacts our physical, but it absolutely impacts our spiritual eternity where we will end up. Striving after godliness prioritizes the eternal over the temporal. This is hard. It requires denial of self in many ways. I've learned over the last year that the physical can absolutely want to prioritize itself over the spiritual. I got to take a leave because of the physical and the mental being so impaired and the emphasis was on restore that. But yet in that restoral, I am thankful for the church here and the men that lead it because the priority was that, but the priority over that was still the spiritual. So while I could get agitated and irritated and frustrated in the slow results or no results that were going on, I was amazed at the spiritual results that were going on and they were painful, but they were good. So we, we have to deny the physical to gain spiritual. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to cry. It's okay to not always think clear. But it's not okay to not trust God, to not love God, and to not obey him in everything that we do. And that does mean denying self. If I don't feel well, it has no impact on if I obey God. If anything, the suffering, which... I call minor still, has reinvigorated a desire for him. He uses it that way, the temporal versus the eternal. So second, godliness demands temporal sacrifice for eternal benefit. It is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. The two words here, labor and strive, labor is you're going to grow weary in physical, mental, and spiritual hard work. 
and Strive pictures that athletic contest of striding, fighting and struggling to agonize over it. Again, the physical imagery here shifts the focus from that known temporal, what does it feel like to do these things in the physical, to saying that's how you should feel in the spiritual. When you're agonizing, fighting and struggling and you're exhausted from being godly and pursuing godliness, that's what it should feel like. That's what the leaders are called to do of the church and that's what the model should be for the church. Does it point to all of us? Yes, absolutely the leaders. There is a risk of the work that needs to be done. There is a risk in calling out these things in the church. There's a risk just as Dalton pointed out today. If you preach the truth, you're going to prison. It doesn't happen here, but it happens right across the border now. It gets nearer and nearer. It will be an exhausting fight. With spiritual forces of darkness, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, but actually more so against our own hearts. What's this hope that he's talking about? It's in, how's their hope in effort, pain, agony, and all this training? It's a perfect hope, the living God who saves men, especially believers. The hope is a completed hope, one that Christ has accomplished. He has saved us and continues to do the active work in it. It is hope. It is fixed hope. It will not change. And the word here for believers is the faithful. Kind of that idea of you will be faithful in doing these, the faithful churches. But it's a little odd for us to hear who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. Is Paul actually teaching some universal salvation? No. You can think of it more as Paul pointing out and answering the question of which ones. He uses the same thing in, in several verses. First Timothy chapter 5 when he's talking about elders, 2 Timothy 4. So if you, if you think about it like this, in, in 5 he says, these elders are worthy of double honor. And then he gives a clarification, the ones who are working hard at preaching and teaching. He's really just asking and answering the question. Elders are worthy of double honor. Which ones? These ones. So when he's saying God will save all men, which ones? These ones, the ones who believe are the ones that will be saved. Paul's doing that for an intensity to help show, yes, this is absolutely the ones that he will save. We are to pursue godliness at all costs. Bodily, temporal gain, minimal. We like to feel burned from our workouts, maybe, maybe not. But it's that same physical exertion that we should feel spiritually as we're giving What do we invest time and money in? Our two most valuable resources that we seem to have? Well, that easily shows us where we're investing for him. Do we labor and exhort each other? What do we worry about the most? Do we fight for dual incomes? Do we fight for the right to corn our house? Do we fight for the right children? For the right spouse, car, clothes? Maybe it's you want to feed your family the right way. Is it all organic, grass-fed? Pour a lot of time and effort into that. Seems important sometimes. But it is all temporal. And if your efforts are exceeding that, what you're doing spiritually in your home, for your family, or anywhere else in the church, they're wrong. They're out of priority. These are the priorities that we need to give. Are you willing to neglect even the gathering of the saints for the priority of self-preservation? Fear, of coming together for sickness, or maybe it's just pain and suffering. I cannot come. Sometimes it's absolutely true. You cannot make it. It is that debilitating. 
But do not be fearful. Assemble, serve, worship, praise, joyfully, no matter what it feels like. Ryle says, doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It is worse than useless. It actually does positive harm. Something of the image of Christ must be seen and observed by others in our private life, habits, character, and doing. Pray with me. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to preserve, persevere in what we are doing, in nourishing ourselves, in training ourselves in your word, in the right words, in the right training, in the right way, and help that exertion to be one that is felt in us, to know that we are growing. The pain is sometimes good for knowing that there was enough work done that some growth will come of it. Lord, help us to focus our priorities to shift to the eternal versus the temporal, that we would see you and know you and that we would trust you no matter what we think now. Our thinking is so limited in comparison to you. Our time here is so limited in comparison to you. Help us to see and savor you, treasure you above all things.